Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. We have been busy the last two weeks putting together our final show, the star on the top of this podcast Christmas tree, wrapping our final gifts to you, our audience. It's been another fantastic year for us, filled with incredible guests and amazing conversations. One of the most exciting changes this year is a move to a broader discussion to include geographies outside China and explore the ins and outs of the markets and consumers across Southeast Asia. We are so incredibly grateful to you, our listeners, for continuing to enjoy our show and giving us the feedback we need to continue to deliver guests and content that matter to you. It's truly our pleasure to be able to put this together week in and week out for you to all enjoy. We also want to thank all our amazing guests this past year who provide the expert commentary and insights. It is their lifetime of hard work and expertise that we are leveraging and we know it. So with that in mind, we bring you part one of our 2022 year in review. We're hitting the rewind button to take a look back at some of our favorite moments from this past year. And if you like what you hear, feel free to jump directly to the full episode to hear it in its entirety. And be sure to tune in next week for part two. From all of us here at the Negotiation and WPIC Marketing and Technologies, we hope all of you have a Merry Christmas and wish you all a Happy New Year. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Our first feature comes from episode 146 and 147 on September 7th and 14th with Patrick Deloy, Managing Director at Merkle, an award-winning e-commerce solutions provider which supports medium-to-large B2C and B2B companies with the planning, development, localization, and long-term support of multi-country e-commerce website deployments in the APAC region. I had asked Patrick, what is the omni-channel retail ecosystem and environment today in the APAC region? Again, if you look at China, we all know with which speed and ingenuity, really, the omnichannel retail sector has developed, fired up by super apps, widespread adoption of uh, online payment options, logistics, which is its own challenge for a country that big, right? The popularity of innovative concepts like live streaming, influencer commerce, and of course, also very much so a, a, regulatory, frame, a regulatory framework that at least until recently, like, you know, allowed and supported this flourishing ecosystem. So for the longest time, China was always posting the highest uh, growth numbers for omnichannel retail. 
but but now what's interesting as well is because there's uh, of course we're reaching also a little bit of a, a point of saturation. I think most recently as well you've seen the news right Alibaba, Tencent uh, you know, for the first time they actually had to take a step back. They did not grow as as much as they did a couple of years. But now we see the highest growth numbers actually um, in markets that are playing still playing catch up. So take uh, for example Indonesia and the Philippines. The e-commerce market actually in in, in uh, both markets uh, this year is growing by 25%, 25% year on year. In fact, the Philippines right now is by most measures the highest e-commerce growth of any country in the world anywhere, followed by Indonesia and, and Vietnam is also in the top five. Similar to what we've seen actually previously in China, what has held uh, these companies back when it came to omni-channel retail was also very much an insufficient logistics network, right? If you think of uh, the Philippines or Indonesia, a lot of islands as well. How do you get the products to to all the consumers? Unavailability also of mobile payment options and just a lack of D2C channels as well. Not a lot of brands were actually interested to sell direct, but, but that has changed a lot now. For the payment infrastructure, there was always a little bit of a workaround, of a workaround, I think, um, what has happened a lot over the last uh, few years, especially where not all consumers have bank accounts, or online payment options or credit cards. There was a lot of cash on delivery, for example, which also works decently, even though it's not mm-hmm. as uh, efficient. You had these big players that came up, right? Like in Indonesia, it's all go to uh, Tokopedia. The marketplace is huge in, in the market. In the Philippines, it's driven by Shopee and Lazada. And really on the back of that, you know, more and more D2C brands extending their offering as well in, in the and, uh, and they're really driving the change as well because with them on their coattails, basically the logistics networks uh, get stronger, the delivery uh, options get easier and it becomes cheaper, which is, again, it's a factor of price as well. It is prohibitively expensive to, to ship products to consumer in any of these countries and you know, omni-channel commerce with the online component just uh, doesn't work well. Our second clip features Liam Mather, Head of Public Affairs and Communications at WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Reporting to the Chief Marketing Officer, Liam helps guide WPIC's public and government affairs, strategic communications, media engagement, corporate branding, and sales enablement. Liam previously worked in BCW's corporate and public affairs practice in Beijing, where he helped clients manage reputations, respond to crises, and navigate policy issues. This was from episode 134, released on March 15th. And for those who didn't get to hear the full episode, it's quite unique as we have the opportunity to talk to Liam about his time covering the Winter Olympics from within the Olympic bubble. Specifically, Liam was able to cover the hockey event. So we asked him about the state of hockey in China, specifically women's hockey. And here's what he had to say. Just to focus first on like the on-ice performance of the teams. So the women's team picked up two wins in, in round-robin play against Denmark and Japan. Um, and during both those games, I mean, hockey was in the top 10 to trending things on, on Weibo. It seemed to generally generate a lot of focus. Um, and on the women's team, I mean, the captain is Chinese-born. Uh, a couple of their other key players are Chinese-born. So much was made before the Olympics about how many of the players on both teams were uh, so-called heritage players, people from North America, who have Chinese uh, ancestry, um, but who are not Chinese citizens suiting up for the team. But I think on the women's team in particular, there were pretty significant contributions made from Chinese-born players. Um, and so I'd say the, the women's team is actually pretty impressive. They, they played really well as a team, really skilled players. They, they actually qualified for the Vancouver Olympics by rights in 2010 and, and won a game then. So 
uh, yeah, there's certainly women's hockey seems to be in, in a stronger position in terms of like international competitiveness. Um, the men, I didn't have an opportunity to see any of the men's games in person, but I think they outplayed expectations uh, in the round robin. They um, kind of got blown out in the first game by the U.S. eight nothing. Um, but then in their next game against Germany, they only lost three to two um, and kept it a close game. And, and and there were, and this might not seem like a huge achievement to a casual sort of uh, listener, but I mean Germany won gold, won won silver in the 2018 Olympics, which also didn't feature NHL players. So. Um, they're a pretty solid team. And um, there was a lot of sort of commentary before these games that the men's team, the Chinese men's team might not even score a single goal in the Olympics. And then in their second game, they scored two against Germany and kept it a close game. And then in their third game against Canada, they lost seven, two, but the first period was actually very close. And the fact that they put up two goals against Canada, I think is a noteworthy accomplishment, but just like the women's team, they, they did generate a bit of attention on Chinese social media. I think people understood that, um, you know, the amount of resources needed to develop a internationally competitive hockey program are, are very high and you need a long period of time for the, to, to kind of reap the fruits of that. So I think people were kind of understanding, um, and yet still proud of the performance of those teams. So, so that was neat to watch. Um, in terms of like the state of hockey more broadly in China, I think before the Olympics, you saw a very significant growth in hockey participation and, and hockey infrastructure. So I have some data like in 2015, which was the year that Beijing won the game games bid, there were 200 ice hockey rinks. And now there are 900, which is a pretty massive increase that that actually makes China one of the, the top countries in the world uh, for number of ice rinks. Um, and just five years ago, there were about a thousand players in China, according to the double IHF but now there are 13,000. So efforts by the, by the government to promote ice hockey ever since they, they won the Olympics bid uh, seven years ago, I think have been pretty successful at increasing participation, making the game more visible, making the game more popular. And I think the Olympics are only going to give a bigger boost to that. Um, so I'm pretty optimistic about the, the, the state of hockey in China. I think it's uh some of my friends who are, who are coaches, you know, they're, they're adopting like the top international standards set by, you know, hockey Canada or USA hockey for, for coaching, for coaching young players. Um, they're frequently sending, you know, teenagers to go play in competitive junior leagues um, or, or, you know, maybe even at the college level in the U S. So I think there is a, you know, it's going to be a slow process to make China like really a top hockey country. And I'm not sure if or when they'll get there, but definitely I think the trajectory is, is upward and it's a, a positive outlook for hockey in China. Up next is a clip from episode 152 on October 19th, the first of two episodes with an old friend of mine and an old friend of the podcast, William Balbean. William is a general partner at SOSV and managing director of Orbit Startups. Orbit Startups helps companies scale breakthrough technologies across emerging and frontier markets to the regions with the most aggressive growth. William is a senior advisor at SOSV, who has been a pioneer in the tech and telecommunications space in Asia. During his time with SoftBank China and India Holdings, he led investments in companies such as Yodo One, Demis Data, Lee Can, and Massive Impact. 
He was also an equity research analyst at Deutsche Bank, covering the internet and telecom equipment sector in Asia for 11 years before joining Innovate Ventures as managing director, where he focused on supporting China investments. He is definitely one of the foremost experts on early stage startups and investing in Asia Pacific. And in this particular clip, I asked him, what are the strengths and differences of the teams you invest in and work with within Asia versus outside Asia? Yeah, it's a complicated one. And so we're primarily working with startups from Asia. Most U.S. startups um, think U.S. first because U.S. is a very, very, very big market. Um, so I think the... Uh, you know, the, the first challenge is that in order to drive a revolution in the U.S., um, you need to you need to have like a some sort of game changing technology generally. Uh, it's not just uh, general. It's not just good enough to show up and making something slightly better. You need to make it much, much, much better. Uh, and uh, most of those challenges are pretty unique to developed markets like the U.S. and Western Europe. Uh, so uh, first world problems, right? Uh, and, and so um, when, um, you know, the entrepreneurs uh, try and exp- come from the U.S. or come from North America and they want to expand to other markets, um, they often don't understand very well that it's difficult to take something that worked in the U.S. and bring it to other countries um, or other countries in Asia uh, because Asian markets are not as developed. And when they did develop, they developed differently. Um, For example, the U.S. uh, e-commerce penetration was 1% a year for 15 years. It took 15 years for uh, the U.S. to to reach 15% e-commerce market share um, versus total uh, consumer spend. Right. Uh, Asia was already like uh, 32, 33 percent of all spend is online. So uh, more than double. Now, during COVID, U.S. kind of caught up. Uh, U.S. went from 15 to 30 percent in two years. Uh, But um, Asia is a different market. Now, entrepreneurs in Asia, um, if they're coming from a big market like uh, China, um, they uh, are very, very data driven, very experiment driven. Uh, And uh, when they are coming out of China, you know, they uh, generally do pretty well. Uh, once they get the understanding of the local problems and the local legal system and platform. Whereas when you get a, a U.S. startup coming in, they don't have that the same level of culture of uh, fundamental experimenting, like questioning fun, real fundamental challenges. Uh, so, for example, problems. Um, does your solution actually solve a problem in Asia? So somebody from Asia understands that uh, even if I'm in my own market, like Jakarta, you know, in Indonesia, but I go to another city, it's like another country. It runs completely different. Um, Whereas the U.S. is pretty homogenous in terms of infrastructure, in terms of problems, in terms of uh, the, the opportunities out there. Whenever, like, it's not like you go to New York and then you you hit Chicago and you have to redo all your experiments, right? But if you're in Carta and you go to Surabaya, you need to redo everything. You need to start off experimenting pretty much from ground zero to make sure that your solution is going to, you know, solve a problem in that neighboring city, let alone if you're going from Indonesia to Malaysia, right? So I'd say 
Um, the, the culture of experimenting in, in Asia is pretty strong. Of course, the U.S. is strong, too. But usually once a company in the U.S. gets product market fit, they're not continuing to, uh, you know, to to challenge their, their, their basic model. They're trying to take that model and replicate it. Whereas in Asia, if you want to try and go cross-border, uh, you, you really have to uh, make significant changes to what you're doing in order to make sure that your solution is solving a problem in the city, the region, or the country that you're going into. On March 7th, we released episode 133 with Zarina Kanji. Based in London, Zarina is the head of business development for health and wellness and food and beverage brands at Alibaba. She previously served as VP of Global Fashion Brand Partnerships at Lazada in Singapore. Zarina spoke with us about Tmall's upcoming International Women's Day at the time, of course, which happens on March 8th every year, a key event tied to the company's Super Brand Day. It has proven in previous years to be the third largest shopping festival in the nation, behind 1111 and 618, and is a unique opportunity for brands to engage with women across China. So, for this clip, we chose her response to my question, can you tell us a little bit about what the Gen Z female consumers really care about in China right now, and how does that differ from their elder counterparts? It's really important that brands are looking towards the demands of Gen Z millennial female consumers in China. If we take Tmall Global alone, around 70% of our consumers are female. If we look at the age demographics of consumers who are shopping on Tmall Global, 85% of our consumers are under 39. So that line in the sand as to what is an older consumer in China is 40 and above. Um, so 85% of our consumers are under 39. 59% of those consumers are under 30. So it's really, really interesting that brands focus on that area because that is the future consumer and that is the majority consumer today. Um, I think we could talk for hours and hours about the difference between young female consumers and older female consumers in China. Um, there are so many different elements. And I think the first thing to remember is that the Gen Z consumer today grew up digitally native. Their engagement with apps is super high. Um, consumers in China are spending 30 minutes a day with our China retail marketplaces alone. They come to us up to nine times a day. And that is because of the amount of content that is available on our platforms. In China, shopping is all about discovery. It's about education. It's about entertainment. The customer journey is completely different to the West. We love to call it shop attainment. You know, and most recently, we've been hearing a lot about the metaverse and what that is opening up as this new reality for the Gen Z consumer who has known nothing other than shopping online uh, because it, the metaverse is blending this best of physical and digital shopping together. Um, so brands really need to look at ways that are tapping into them, whether that's using AI, AR, avatars, um, different ways of engaging them constantly. Um, and that ranges, of course, across the different sectors. Um, if we look at Tmall in 2020, 80% of the top new brands were focused on female consumer needs. And again, it's that, it's that cross-category. Women are shopping and women have the ability to shop for themselves nowadays. Um, the split, again, between older and younger is really interesting. Um, 
one thing like I, when I was re- doing the research um I I looked at the the trend of dancing grannies in China um so there are meant to be like around a hundred million dancing grannies who do square dancing and anyone that's been to China I'm sure will have seen this um, particularly like on a Sunday morning Sunday afternoon it's not just China it's all of Asia um and it's a this square dancing that kind of has roots in the cultural revolution in the 60s. And so it's a really great way for um, older women to come out and, you know, be active and be social and have a really good quality of life and enjoy themselves. But then we look at the younger consumer in China, particularly the young female consumer in China, for whom fitness and weights and yoga have become some of like the hottest topics that they're searching on social media since the pandemic. Um, We see that rise in people shopping for sportswear and athleisure products. Uh, We see women who uh, in China weren't so into going to the gym. Um, It's still a little bit of an intimidating environment. But through the pandemic, women were coming to the connected fitness apps, such as Keep in China, um, which has made fitness and working out and sport way more accessible to women. Um, It's far less intimidating. And again, go back to the Olympics, Um, Tokyo Summer Olympics last year and the Beijing Winter Olympics in 2022 really thrust women into the forefront. And it's much cooler sports that, that are being taken up. So skateboarding, figure skating, skiers, snowboarders, um, they're really coming to the forefront and they're becoming super popular and they're enabling women in China to engage with sport. Um, So one example would be um, a really famous uh, Chinese sports brand, Xstep, who are now sponsoring the Chinese breakdancing team. And it's really fantastic that We see also the China government getting behind sport in China. Um, In 2015, they pledged to support football in China. And this year we saw the Chinese women win the Asia Women's Football Cup, which is a fantastic achievement. And it's brilliant that the whole country from a government level are supporting sport and changing the lives of young women in China vastly from what it was like for their for their even their mothers, but certainly their grandmothers. Um, So there's a lot to do with activity and sport and health. Uh, But there's also a lot around, you know, just being more aware of their bodies. Female consumers are, you know, struggling with sleep, like we spoke about earlier. And there's a trend in China going on called um, lying flat, where Chinese are looking towards just slowing down and taking up hobbies like yoga, like plant care, like um, going for tea in Zen tea houses. So they've got this real, real kind of cacophony of different trends that are appealing to them as young female in females in China. And it's so different from, from the past, the, the Gen Z, the millennial, and even the alpha consumer in China, who is very, very quickly going to become a really dominant um, demographic. They are so different to, to their foremothers and the importance that we place on international women's day, the importance on health, the importance on sport and their, ability to purchase and to engage is so different than it is than it was for their for their um, mothers and grandmothers that it's going to be such an interesting um, way to such an interesting category to watch going forward on january 12th we were blessed to be able to interview alvin wong graylin china president at htc for anyone unfamiliar 
HTC is an award-winning developer of smart mobile connected technology and virtual reality products. Alvin is also the vice president of the Industry of Virtual Reality Alliance and the president of the Virtual Reality Venture Capital Alliance. He has almost three decades of business management experience in the tech industry, including 20 years in Greater China, beginning with a senior management position at Intel in 1993. Prior to HTC, Alvin was a serial entrepreneur, having founded four venture-backed startups in the mobile and internet spaces, covering mobile social, ad tech, search, AI, big data, and digital media. I asked Alvin to tell us about some of the coolest and most innovative examples of VR that are headed our way in 2022 and beyond. The funny thing is, all the all the cases out there today are things that we've seen in in you know, sci-fi movies for the last you know 30, 40, 50 years. They're just becoming real, and now they they don't feel special anymore because it's like, oh yeah, wasn't that part of that movie or wasn't that part of that novel? Um, so a lot of it is actually you know, let's say you know, doing virtual surgery. So that's you know, uh, surgeons or, or medical students don't kill anybody when when they're when they're doing their first surgeries, right? That that's happening today. You know, we have uh, you know the biggest driving school in China. Uh, they they graduate about a quarter million students a year, and they're using our devices to train all of these students so that they can see all the occasions that they won't see in the real world where, you know, they might, you know, crash in the back of a truck or a dog jumps out in front of them, or you're in a snow situation or, you know, whatever, where to simulate that, there's just no way to do it in, in real world training, but to do that in, in VR allows these students to be much more confident. And then they can go and take their tests and then they're passing at like double the, the success rate uh, as they would, if they were just doing, you know, uh, regular, kind of um in in car driving and and paperwork right so just a lot of it is um is a psychological you know it's being used uh with uh you know therapy where people are using it to get around post-traumatic stress or harassment or with you know some some banks we're working with are doing uh customer training where they have these super obnoxious customers come in and how, how do they keep their their staff calm as they're dealing with these customers and when you're seeing them face to face it's uh in a vr device it's so much different than when you're when you're just you know reading about it or seeing it on the video, because you actually feel like you're interacting with that uh, that customer, and, and and in fact, sometimes you can flip it backwards. You can say, uh, let's say on a harassment uh, type training, we could turn you into a woman, or we could turn you into uh, you know a, 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 the the person being arrested by a police, and and that changes your per, per, uh, perception. So we were doing uh, police training. Um, with some of our of our software, where uh, you know you're essentially being arrested by multiple uh, large policemen and you know being thrown around, and you now as a police officer now feel what it's like to be on the other side, and that helps them to then have more empathy when they uh, deal with uh, with you know, potential uh, convicts or whatever they're the people they're they're they're, uh, they're, they're dealing with. So uh, it's. Um, a lot of it doesn't sound like the super snazzy, exciting, you know, go to Mars stuff, which which we can also do. You know, any we can let any student, you know, take a trip to a field trip to Mars or to underwater or to the you know ancient Egypt. I mean, those those are kind of fun things that, that are happening. Um, you know, we also uh, you know we've invested in companies that do brain computer interface. You put this thing on and it can you can think of something and it'll actually you know uh, move your 
uh, character on on the screen, or or you can uh, you know, think of a word and it'll type it out for you, right? This technology is 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 available today. You can have these these haptic gloves that you can feel a little spider walking on on your hand as you see it. You know, so th th there's just amazing stuff out there. And uh, in fact, I, one thing that I think is actually kind of super cool is, um, you know, about a year ago, I, I tried on this contact lens that allows you to essentially put a lens in your eyes and it, and it gives you a, a display where you're, you're seeing, uh, you know, essentially what you would see on a, on a screen. And it's not as high resolution, but to have a device that's that thin and, and that light and to be able to, to have the full functionality of a high resolution dis display. Uh, that stuff is available now, right? So it's just a matter of time when that gets to a price point where it becomes uh, affordable. Um, you know, there are also devices right now that you can get essentially retinal level um, uh, resolution where you put this on and the, the, the video that's coming in uh, that you're seeing uh, the display content, both the CG display as well as the video pass-through display is uh, supposedly equivalent. I, there's still you can still see some differences, but I would say it's near, uh, you know, retinal level uh, clarity. Uh, and on you know a few thousand dollar devices, and then you know in a few years they'll they'll get down to a few hundred dollars. So I'm I'm just uh, just you know super amazed in terms of and at every every area of this of this industry, there's innovations happening. Our last featured clip for part one of our year in review is from our conversation with Charles Lavoie on November 16th, episode number 156. Charles is the VP of Creative and Head of Creative Labs at WPIC Marketing and Technologies. A creative strategy and data analytics leader, Charles has incredibly strong cross-cultural backgrounds in international growth, go-to-market strategy, growth marketing, data analytics, creative planning, storytelling, sales, e-commerce, design, and retail in the APAC region, with projects focused in China, Hong Kong, Japan, and Singapore. I asked Charles a very nuanced question at one point, probably one of the most granular questions I've asked anyone about brand entry into the APAC region. Specifically, if a brand wants to take a multi-market strategy approach, how do you advise them, especially if they are also trying to stay ahead of an aggressive market competitor who might be going after the same regions for expansion themselves, so they may not have the time to take a step-by-step -step approach? It starts with getting not necessarily on the creative side, but getting the inventory into market, getting the right marketplaces. So I think there's like, you, you can't, you can't teach customer to buy to, an, it's hard or time consuming to teach customer to buy to a, a new marketplace that they're, they're not used to, right? So, and also to spend time on social platforms that they're not like uh, spending time on, right? So probably let's say for, for Japan, getting an, uh, a Japanese Instagram account. For Southeast Asia, getting a regional kind of Instagram account, and then getting like the the Rakuten channel, the Douyin TikTok, maybe the Tmall channel and the Lazada channel. Right, that's going to bring you traffic in terms of uh, in terms of which to do first and how to launch. I mean, there might be factors that are like uh, factors of influence. So there might be some categories where launching in Korea and Japan might help you have success in China right after. So you might prioritize like on a three months cadence, kind of the Japanese launch, be able to create some assets that you'll then be able to leverage for China and then for Southeast Asia. If you're in another category uh, that, you know, 
for example, if you long in South, in Southeast Asia, you might focus more your efforts in Singapore first, that is seen sometimes as one of the market kind of trend leaders, and then generate kind of your PR and engagement in that market, and then leverage that after that across the region, the 10, 10 other countries. So understanding these factors of influence, which region for my brands, for my country might be able to influence other regions is important. And then obviously kind of... Uh, creating as much two-year media planning activities. There's some, you know, APAC-wide kind of media partners. There's some KOLs that might have reach in multiple regions. So trying to have a mix of like, integrated media planning to make kind of e economy of scale and economy of scope while, you know, understanding that, you know, each region is also slightly different. That's it for part one of our year-end review. Be sure to tune in next week when we drop part two. From all of us here at The Negotiation and WPIC Marketing and Technologies, we hope you're enjoying your holidays so far. And until next week, it's bye for now. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.